Linnaean. Linnaean. Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. London. Linnaean Society of London. Linnaean. 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 Future. 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 Food is one of the greatest and most basic needs of all life on Earth. Humans have created a vast and complex food system that has enabled us to eat what we want, when we want it, and from wherever we want. But is this sustainable? Is our food system working? Can we or should we rethink the way we interact with our food? Global rising temperatures are placing a strain on our current food system, which in turn is a significant contributor to global warming. So what does future food production look like? And what can we do as individuals? In this podcast, we'll talk with Chris Maje, the author of A Small Farm Future, that builds an argument for local, low-energy, agrarian societies being best placed to meet the challenges of our times. We also speak with Pam Warhurst, who has taken matters into her own hands to forge deeper, more meaningful connections between people in their communities. And she does this by re-engaging them with their food and where it comes from. She believes that by bringing individuals into a conversation about food security, communities can be empowered to support one another at a time when our future seems so uncertain. My name's Chris Smage. I am a small-scale farmer in northeast Somerset in southwest England. I've been you know, running the farm for a little bit over 10 years now. Previous to that, I was a university-based social scientist, but kind of got interested in environmental issues and food issues and sort of decided to take a, a kind of practical turn. I started doing a blog about 10 years ago, Small Farm Future, .org.uk, where I kind of uh, just addressed a lot of the issues around um, food and farming and, you know, putting that into the, the sort of wider political and economic context. And so a book that I published last year called A Small Farm Future um, came out of that. Here in Britain, you very often hear people say, oh, you know, Britain hasn't been um, self-sustaining in its food production for, for 200 years, um, you know, as if that implies it, it never can be. Um, but it's interesting to unpack why it hasn't been. So part of that was about, um, it, you know, Britain's expanding colonial empire was about bringing food into the country um, so that its population was engaged in doing other things in building industry. I mean, many years ago, Sidney Mintz wrote a fascinating book called Sweetness and Power, where he basically argued that the, you know, the, the industrial working class in industrialising 19th century Britain uh, was relying on sugar grown on slave plantations in, in, in the Americas, on tea, obviously from, from India and China. Cotton, of course, is a, is a whole other story, but, you know, not, not food related so much. Um, and on wheat that was grown in North America, a kind of expanding colonial frontier and in Eastern Europe. Um, but now, you know, Britain, we grow most of the wheat um, that, that, um, that, that we need uh, nationally, but we import um, uh, a lot of our fresh fruit and vegetables. And that's essentially, as I was saying earlier, because energy is cheap and labor is dear. If most of us living in urban areas, you know, there's too many people, not enough land to grow our own food. So it then um, starts posing questions about, okay, well, you know, where is my food coming from? Who is producing it for me? Um, what do the money flows in that look like? Who's getting a relative rewards out of this food system and, and who isn't? So if you just ask a simple question like, 
you know, where is the food in my shopping basket um, coming from? It immediately gets you into those questions about uh, both global and, and, and local um, power. When I go home to India, you know, I can see jackfruit trees on the street. I can see mango trees everywhere. But the thing is that then do the only the tropics enjoy that and we don't in the UK. <laughs> and, you know, like, how do we how do we balance this is the question. Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, it's the modern period has been this huge period of of as well as people moving food commodities moving in the UK or in Europe, generally the potato, um, you know, has been absolutely a key crop and that's not a, 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 an indigenous crop to, to, to Europe. So, um, but obviously there are, you know, you can grow a wider variety of things, generally um, the lower the latitude, you know, what's really significant is the you know, the big commodity crops, you know, the sort of wheat, rice and maize, which, uh, you know, really dominate um, global agriculture. And in some ways, you know, part of my argument in my book is that we need to move away from that a little bit and develop more, um, uh, you know, local alternatives. But when I say local, I, you know, again, I've got the example of the potatoes in mind or, you know, chilies that originally come from the Americas. So it's not about sort of some purist vision of, you know, only what, you know, what was sort of eaten by people a thousand years ago. It's more about diversifying food cultures and, and um, you know, it's more about kind of what works in the, um, the, the sort of local energetic and agrarian economy. Can a city like London, can we look at changing the rural urban exchange of goods? I mean, London can't feed itself, um, for sure. I mean, for all sorts of reasons, it makes sense to grow food, um, uh, you know, within urban spaces, gardens, community gardens, allotments, partly because of the conversation and the sort of connection with food. But, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't dismiss the actual amount of food that can be um, produced. I calculated uh, the, the possibility for Britain to feed itself, even with a considerably higher population that now exists on the basis of there being about um, uh, a little bit less than half an acre per person. Whereas if you look at the, um, you know, the per person, the population density of London, you've got about 0.04 acres per person. And that's assuming that the entire urban space is available for growing. The way that the sort of energy economy works in the world now, it's it's easy for a city like London, it can import its food from, you know, more or less anywhere in the world that it wants to. But historically, you know, cities, their, their size was to some extent um, conditioned by the sort of hinterlands that they were able to, you know, to draw food in from. So for sure, um, there's a, any number of reasons why it's a good idea to be growing food in cities. But no, I mean, in terms of, of actually putting um, energy and protein into the bellies of urban residents, I would argue, no, um, you know, a city like London uh, can't do that um, uh, for itself. You do have an argument in your book about UK being self-sufficient. Could you run us quickly through your idea for how we can and what would be the trade-offs as a citizen of UK? Everybody would have to sort of take more of an interest in where their food came from and that, you know, there would be trade-offs between time spent and money spent on food versus, um, you know, sort of land prices um, uh, and so on and energy prices. I mean, I think to some extent this is 
you know, this is not going to be a choice that people are actively going to make. It's going to be, it's going to arise through force of circumstance. But nevertheless, there would have to be more labour going into food production, whether that's just people, you know, um, backyard gardening allotments, whatever, but, but certainly more people working you know, full-time in agriculture, we'd have to get into cycling food and cycling nutrients um, in, a, in a different way. And that's where livestock can come in, um, you know, things like pigs and chickens, um, you know, are great at, at, at cycling food waste. We'd, we'd probably have to cycle our own waste as, as well. The sort of waste that comes out of the household then, then feeds into the next cycle of production. We would be eating less meat um, than we currently are. But, you know, essentially, when you think about all the traditional farm animals, they're all essentially tappers and cyclers of nutrients that, that it's hard for people, you know, in low energy situations, you know, ruminants eat grass that we can't directly eat, uh, pigs and chickens, you know, recycle food waste. So there's definitely a place um, for those, um, uh, for that livestock on sustainable farms but it would be much less than the you know the existing global food industry where we're you know so shoveling all this soy and and, and and grain down the throats of these uh, poor animals it would be a big change in diet uh, and a big change in focus um, but you know my view is that um, the, the the sort of climate and energy and really political and economic um, futures that are coming down the barrel towards us, are, you know, are going to push us in that direction anyway. And the more that we can sort of embrace it and, and prefigure it and, and get to grips with it, um, the better it will be. You know, it would be a, a, a different world to the one that we're used to. So for the most part, if growing your own food isn't the answer, why bother doing it at all? Is there any point in even caring about this as a point of discussion? Perhaps the actual point of engaging with one of our most basic needs, being the growing of food, should not be seen as a means to an end, but actually beginning of something much greater than our individual selves that Pam brilliantly further unwraps through her experience and work. People care about their communities on the whole, and people want the best for their families on the whole. It's just that we don't have a system, either educational or social in this country, that nurtures our knowledge to allow us to use our gifts to the betterment of our community and our families. Okay, so I could I could sulk about that, or I could write a placard about that, or I could go on Twitter about that, or I could actually just say, I'm going to demonstrate an alternative proposition here that says ordinary people in the place they call home can come together, will come together, want to share, get joy from reconnecting with each other and understand more about where food comes from if we adopt the incredible edible model. I do think that people have not had the opportunity to find their own self-worth collectively as we start to reconnect with the same human beings that we've been over millennia. So I'm Pam Warhurst um, and I'm the founder of a movement called Incredible Edible. We, we created 13 years ago um, as a grassroots response to climate change using food as a connector, a Trojan horse as we like to call it, so that people could start to take positive actions around food and at the same time start to understand their relationship with their space and their place and their soil and their planet 
Its purpose is to prepare communities in times of real challenge with the self-belief that they can find local solutions without waiting for other people to come up with them and without necessarily waiting for their permission to enact them. Its purpose is to demonstrate through engagement that people are not victims, but actually have great gifts that are very often not called upon. And the vision was that as we move towards a more challenging future with climate change, wherever we live, we are going to have to rely on our own resilience with our own neighbours, our families, our community a lot more. Now, if you look at that as the outcome that you're trying to achieve, to, to open people's eyes to the challenges ahead, but not be so frightened, they're petrified to do anything. And if you, if you also say, and actually, you know, food is a very good proxy food sovereignty, food justice or whatever, for all manner of um, impacts that climate change is, go- is going to bring. If, you, if that's your outcome, then, and you have people not talking to each other, not connecting to their neighbours, not seeing they are part of a wider community, then you're kind of trying to fight with one arm tied around your back. So, ultimately, the model of Incredible Edible is not a food-growing model. We are not community farms. We are not allotment associations. We are a movement that uses food to build a grassroots response to climate change. And if you're going to do that, you need to look holistically about how people live their lives. And people live their lives in three ways, which are what we call the three spinning plates. The first thing is, and the most immediate thing that anybody can do, is to start to plant food in public places, what we would call propaganda gardens. So over time, you get more food growing locally, not because we plan to feed the town or the country or the planet, but we aim to stimulate a conversation around food, often with complete strangers, but building that sense of community while people say, oh, I haven't seen that grown there for a long time. Do you remember when granddad did that? Oh, I've never seen that grown in this country. How did you grow that? Or whatever these conversations, very simple It's a very low level of entry, but people can engage. They don't feel they need to have a qualification or be a member of the RHS to do it. So the first thing is grow food in public places close to where people live and start the conversation through propaganda gardens. You then immediately go on to what the next stage is going to be, which is people don't know what to do with food anymore. So if what you want to do is to get people taking over their spaces and growing food, you need to start giving them some skills that means more and more people can do that in a really informal way, which is what we call our Lost lost Arts programme around learning. And that's not just about growing, because why would anybody grow if you couldn't cook? Why would you, why would you, you know, so if you assume that times are going to be quite challenging. It would be useful to know how to make good, nutritious meals from fresh food. It would be good to know where that food came from so you know it wasn't full of pesticides. It would be good to know how you can bring on food from seed or graft a tree without having to spend a lot of money at a garden centre. And and therefore, ultimately, it would be good to be able to grow collectively and maybe think through, is it soil that I need to grow? 
Or should I be thinking about hydroponics because there are some issues around that that maybe I can create more food? Or should I be talking to architects who are designing local buildings and say, could you could you put some reinforcement on that roof so I could grow on it? Right? These things happen because people aren't stupid. But you've started a conversation and built confidence. The third plate is very simple. If you do not create jobs out of anything, you are not suddenly going to wake up in a world where everybody gets why they need to live their lives differently. So you start to stimulate through people thinking about local food, acting around local food, talking about local food, more people going to more local food outlets. We get to know people who grow the food. We taste the cheese. We cut down the food miles and we've never even started to talk about carbon. We're just food. So those are the three things that are the elements of Incredible Edible. And they are there in order that when support mechanisms fall aside, as we've seen them do in recent years and increasingly so, let us design the ability to create nutritious food in all our settlements as a point of principle. Let us do that. Because we will be closer to a point where more people can eat things that they can see growing and know there is goodness in the soil than we would have been if we didn't even start that because it was all too complicated. Linnaean. 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 Future. 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 Future.